life, says the Roman philosopher Lucretian, is one long struggle in the dark. Occasionally, my family and I will gather around the TV and we will watch a show called Man vs. Wild. Have you ever seen that show? With Bear Grylls. You know, he eats all kinds of weird things. It totally grosses us out sometimes. But one episode that we saw recently came to mind thinking about this quote from Lucretian. And in this episode, he's exploring, I can't remember what country he's in, but he is exploring this, this deep cavern that goes deep into, seems like the heart of the earth. And he, he makes this, you know, torch with just stuff he finds on the ground. And he's walking through this, uh, this cave and there's water in it. And he's first ankle deep, then knee deep, then he's like waist and chest deep going through this dark cave and then his light goes out. And he's just in this cave and it is pitch black. Now his cameraman has the you know, the night vision, so it's, you can see him, and it's kind of that green uh, setting where you can see what's going on, but for Bear Grylls, it is completely dark. You can't see anything, and he keeps going forward. He keeps plowing forward, going through this cave, and you just wonder, is there anything at the end? Is he, is he actually going towards something? And for Lucretian, the answer was, Luc- Lucretius, the answer was no. There's nothing at the end of this dark, cavernous tunnel, which is called life. Life is just one struggle in the dark. Well, there were others throughout history that would counter these ideas of Lucretian, who was coming from really a, a materialistic background where there's nothing transcendent, there is nothing outside of us, there's nothing, there's no God. You've heard of some of these, I'm sure. Two that come to mind, two of my favorite authors. One would be Augustine, who did see an an end to this struggle we call life. And so you're probably familiar with this quote, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. There's an end to which we're going, according to Augustine. And then, of course, there's C.S. Lewis. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world, that there's something beyond this present struggle, that there's something beyond what we do experience sometimes. It seems like life is filled with darkness, like it is a struggle. And sometimes you feel this more urgently than other times. I'm thinking about our friends at Christ Covenant Church who Tom Mercer, their pastor, uh, granddaughter was, was diagnosed with leukemia and then recently also Tom found out that a very close friend, someone close to the church, uh, spouse, a, a woman has ALS and it's like blow after blow after blow and for, I'm sure for them it feels just overwhelming, this this sense of, of brokenness and fallenness in this world. Is there any end to which we are going? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel, in other words? Well, in this passage that we have before us this morning, we do have something that is totally transcendent. 
We, we encounter something or rather someone who is totally outside of us and it assures us that there is something beyond this present struggle. That there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It makes us look up from our ordinary lives, these lives filled with struggle, to that which is transcendent. And in Him we have hope. As Paige read our passage this morning, verses 1 through 18, this is what is sometimes called the prologue to the book of John. It's in, we could call it an introduction to his, this particular gospel account, this book. And the author does it in a fascinating way. He doesn't just give us an introduction, here's what I'm going to talk about in the rest of the book. He does it in a very beautiful and poetic fashion. He looks back to the creation of the world and he looks forward to the person and the work of Jesus. Throughout this book, these themes that are found in this introduction, this prologue, will be expanded upon. We will see them come up again and again. In other words, this prologue tells us what the book is about in a way that leads us to worship, really. Not, it just doesn't give us information. It leads us to worship and stand in awe of who this is. Does, it, does so in a way that fills our hearts with longing and wonder and a real sense of the transcendent, of that other being. In our first five verses, this is what we'll be focusing on this morning, this, these first five verses of the prologue. The author tells us a great deal about what the book is about. And we'll continue on, as, as I was saying, through the prologue for the rest of that information, for the complete picture of this, this book. But let's consider from these first five verses, what is the book of John about? And I have three points for you this morning that we get from these verses. What is John's gospel about? First, John's gospel is about the promises of God. The promises of God. Notice how he begins his book, in the beginning. This phrase, in the beginning locates this book as connected to the writings of the Old Testament. This is not unconnected. This is not disconnected from the rest of the Scriptures. So one of our very own, Dr. McKenzie, has, uh, I've been able to sit with him in his Old Testament class recently, and it's been really encouraging. Um, one of the things he's suggested is, and it's probably not original to him, but I'll give credit where I, where I got it from, in Genesis, in the beginning is used to signal that there's an end also, right? So you think beginning and end, right? So in the beginning signals to the reader there's something else coming. There's an end coming. There is a, a purpose to all of this. And he has suggested that this particular term, the end times or last things, latter times, is used throughout the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible in a particular way, along with some other signals. But this is a particular signal which speaks of the promised one who is to come. He signals by this term, the latter times, that God's promises of a great king and ruler would come to defeat his enemies and gather together a faithful people for himself. Is that basically it, Tracy? Good, good. And hey, perfect. So when John uses this phrase, in the beginning, 
he is locating his own writing in the context of the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises of God. It's beautiful, isn't it? He is a genius. The Gospel of John is not disconnected from the rest of God's revelation to man. John is writing about these promises. He's signaling to us, look, here is the fulfillment of the promises of God to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to King David. He, it's as if he's saying, introducing the one, the only, this one who has been promised from the very beginning, this promised king is here. We often make a, a big deal about a Christ-centered reading of Scripture, and that is good. We should do that. We should read Scripture in a Christocentric way, right? But we also need to be careful to read it in a canonical way. This is a unified book, and John is illustrating that here. He's, he's displaying that here. This is totally connected to all the promises of God throughout Scripture. It is a unity. And so from the opening lines of the Gospel, this Gospel of John, then our minds are moved to the faithfulness of God as the one who makes promises and the one who keeps promises. He is here. What I'm telling you, John's saying, concerns the promises of God from the Old Testament Scriptures. So we quickly see that this book is about the promises of God and the faithfulness of God. It's also about the Word of God. In the beginning, and where does your mind go? Not to the Word. In the beginning, God. So we're, we're already thinking about God. In the beginning, God, right? But instead, John throws us off. He throws us a curveball. In, be- in the beginning was the Word. And John calls this promised one the Word. This too has links back to the Old Testament in which many, in many instances the Word is personified. It, it is one who actually does things and accomplishes things. God accomplishes things through His Word. Genesis 1, for instance. God speaks And what happens? What he speaks comes into existence. He speaks and it happens. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Psalm 107, 20. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their pits. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. Notice the personification. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The word is the self-expression of God. It is the communication of God. Now, some people take this word in John to be a reflection of uh, Greco-Roman philosophy. I'd rather say, no, it's pointing back to the Old Testament scriptures. John finds himself not as a philosopher, but as one kind of like the Old Testament prophets. He too is speaking in the vein of the Old Testament. He is, this one who has come then is not merely one who is come, coming to, to speak about God. He's not merely one 
coming to give revelation from God as the Word. John is saying, this is the revelation from God. This is the revelation from God. And as we continue on, we learn three truths about this Word. First, in the beginning was the Word. Thought about giving these other headings, but there it is in the text. In the beginning was the Word. This is referring not to at the moment of creation. This is referring to prior to creation. In the beginning was the Word. Before anything existed was the Word. His eternal existence. Does not speak of the Word's point of origin, but of His existence. He simply was. And so as as we take in the beginning... God, and add to it this word which is eternally existent, what are we thinking still? God. We're thinking this is, he's, he's telling us about the one who comes to fulfill the promises, but it sounds like he's speaking about God. He's pointing us to God. But then we might have a little confusion with the next line. And the word was with God. How do you have God with God? And the Word was with God. This is speaking not merely of a presence with, but a relationship to. An orientation towards this God. So the confusion might come then, if we're talking about God, here He is distinguishing this Word from God. How is that possible? He is personally distinguished from the Word of God. So this is one who is in the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, one who is eternally existent and in relationship with God, distinguished in person from Him. Well, if we we had any confusion, the next phrase erases all doubt. And the Word was God. John erases all doubt for us. We were right the first time. He is speaking about God. He did not become God. It's not something he wasn't. And then he became that later on through uh, a pronouncement by God or something. He was God. Always has been God. The Word was God. And this is what we know of as God. Are, are you know contributing to our Trinitarian theology? God is one in essence. John would never write about multiple gods. That would be totally out of the question for John or any other author of the New Testament, anyone associated with the Jewish religion. God is one in essence, and He is three in persons. Now, maybe on occasion. You've had someone come to your door and they've knocked on your door and they're telling you about this magazine that they have and they want to tell you about it and they want to have a conversation with you. It's the Watchtower magazine. You've had Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door before. And what is interesting is uh, not long ago they came out with their own translation of the Bible, which is the New World Translation. Have you heard of that before? How many of you have had Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door? Almost all of you. Now look, they are a good 
example to us in going and talking to other people about spiritual things. We can't deny that. Even if it's a little awkward and you don't want people at your door, look, they are making an attempt to speak of spiritual things. They just have the wrong things to say. So the New World Translation, they translate this, the Word was a God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Interesting. Why do they do that? Well, they say that the, the, the Greek language itself, literally translated, this is what they'll say, says it, it doesn't have what is called the definite article there, which would signal they're talking about the God, and so they would translate it a God. Well, what do we do with that? Are, are they right about that? Or have we just mistranslated that all along? Well, I want to say that John has been very careful to say exactly what he means, and he didn't mean a God. If he had written according to how the Jehovah's Witnesses think he should have written, then it would have been an interchangeable sentence. In other words, if, they had, if John had put the article there to make it say what they think it should say, then it, it would say the Word was God, or it could also possibly mean God was the Word, which would not be good theology. That would mean all that God is is summarized in the Word, and He's nothing else. But we also know... What? That God is Father, Son, and Spirit. He's not simply the Word, but He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so John is finding out the best way possible for him to not have any confusion about what he's saying. He is saying the Word was God. It is exactly the way he said it that he should have said it. Otherwise, it would result in a heresy, possibly commonly known as modalism, where you have modalism is that the one error of, say, oneness Pentecostalism. Those who view God as being one, but not having a distinction of persons. In other words, they say, God, there's only one God, but He just acts in different ways. So there's no Father, Son, and Spirit distinct personalities. He just kind of manifests Himself, sometimes as Father, other times as Son, other times as Spirit. So that is called modalism. That's, you don't want to believe that. That's not, that's not the right understanding of the Trinity. right? So we believe that God is one in essence. He is one being. But He is three in person. So you have three distinct persons and one being. One God. The Trinitarian God. This is what we believe as Trinitarian Christians. So don't be confused about this. And John puts it that way. Because he doesn't want us to mix it up. Therefore, in John, we have the oneness of God in essence and the distinction of persons. God and the Word, which is also God. Another reason why people get this wrong is they're trying to... So the Jehovah's Witness, for instance, if they read that verse... And, and come up with a God, well, they're reading it in isolation. They're not even looking at the context before or afterwards. Because clearly, as you look at this, it's speaking of the one eternal God. You see, uh, verse, verse 2 is a kind of inclusion and restatement of verse, the statement in verse 1, He was in the beginning with God. And then look at verse 3. This Word is the Creator of all things. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being. The only thing that hasn't come into being is God Himself. 
And so here he's saying this word is the creator of all things. This is another allusion to Genesis. Things being created, things coming into existence. And the word used here for coming into existence is also found in verses 6, 10, and 12. It means being brought into existence, being made. And that's different than the word which was used of the word in the first three sentences we read. In the beginning was the word. He didn't come into existence. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Eternally existent. It's it's almost as if he's pointing forward in the book to where Jesus says, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Not I became, I am. Always the existent one. The one who simply is. So read in context, There's no doubt about the Word's identity as the one true and everlasting God. Now, if you want an application, you've already got one. This is why we sing, brothers and sisters. This is why we worship. Because of who He is. Because of who He is, we give thanks, and we sing, and we worship, and we live for God's glory because of His faithfulness, Because of who He is, because He has spoken to us, He has revealed Himself to us. We worship. And this is why it's so offensive to God when we worship anything else. Can you imagine that this is who our God is and we would settle to worship something less than Him? It's unbelievable if we were to pause and consider it. Consider, though, the things that you, you worship instead of this supreme, transcendent God. Trinkets. You, you worship nothings. We worship nothings. You worship your own power and control over your life. You worship pleasure and gratification, money and possessions, things that you think are worthy. Other people. And you know, our sin is not only that we worship other things, but that when it comes to worshiping the one true God, we often have to to work ourselves up to feel what we ought to feel. Isn't that amazing? So in high school, I wrestled, many of you know that, and prior to every match, every time I got on the mat, I would psych myself up not out I would psych myself up so if you saw me out there I would be walking back and forth and I'd be talking to myself and you could see the expression on my face that I was not happy right I was like a a prowling lion ready to devour someone (laughs) now sometimes I got devoured (laughs) but there was no doubt about one thing before the match I was getting my mind right I was in the right frame of mind to wrestle somebody else. I was psyching myself up, and it was necessary during wrestling. But should that be a necessary thing when it comes to worshiping the one true God of the universe? Consider the things you don't have to work yourself up to be excited about. Kids, consider your birthday. You have to try to work yourself up to get excited about getting gifts and coming together and everybody singing happy birthday to you. Now, adults, I I left you out of that one because you might not be excited about that. But Christmas 
do you have to work yourself up to get excited about Christmas kids? Again, maybe the adults, so there might be some tension there. What are the things that you really get excited about? You don't think, man, I really got to work myself up, psych myself up to get excited about this thing I really love and enjoy. How, it, how ought it to be then when it comes not only to gathering here each Sunday, but in your own times, in your times of family worship, in your own mind as you consider this transcendent God? What does it say about us that we would have to work ourselves up to that? I think it's a testament to our own spiritual dullness that we have to do that. This amazing revelation, this eternally existent, present with the Father, creator of the universe, this one we were made to worship. I think it also speaks to the fact that we actually sometimes don't have to work ourselves up to it. It speaks to the grace of God who has put his spirit within us. No one, no one will naturally do that, right? You, those times that you do worship God freely and you don't have to work yourself up to it, that is not owing to anything in and of yourself. That is owing to the Holy Spirit of God within you, which has given you grace to know and understand that this is the one you are worshiping. It's all of grace. It's back to the spirit and his work in you. Give thanks to God for those times. This book is about the promises of God being fulfilled, the externally existent, present with the Father, fully divine Word of God. And third, this book is about the triumph of the light over the darkness. This is good news. That which will overcome even our own spiritual dullness towards God. The triumph of the light over the darkness. Now, as we look at verses 3 and 4, there's a question about the punctuation in the original original manuscript there. It's ambiguous. We, We can't tell exactly where the period goes. So there are two ways of reading this. Yours probably says, apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Period. In him was life. Do you see that in in your version? Most modern translations have that. There is the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version, which says, and this goes in line sometimes with some of the oldest manuscripts, apart from him, nothing came into being, period. What came into being in him was life. Interesting. Either way, we we can see that Jesus is seen as the source and the origin of, of life and light, right? first one's easy to make sense of. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. The second one's a little more difficult, but if you, you rearrange it in the English so that it, it's maybe a, a more understandable translation, you could read, life is what came into being in him, right? He's the source, the origin of life from which life flows, Now, one commentator takes the second translation and sees it again as a reference back to Genesis and specifically to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, which was held out to Adam and Eve as a gift, although they forfeited this gift by their own sin and rebellion against God. Now, this is is not out of place, right, with John's other allusions going back to Genesis and to the Garden. 
It fits with the flow also of John's poetic narrative. So you have pre-existence with God, creation, life in the Garden of Eden. Right? We haven't, in, in the prologue, we haven't yet gotten to Jesus, the Word, becoming flesh and coming down. So it makes sense. Either way, it's clear that John is speaking of not merely physical life which came to being through him, but spiritual life, that which is truly life. And so in the book of John, this word always speaks of spiritual life, never merely physical life, abundant life, life which comes from God. We see then where this true life is found. Where is it found? In the Word. This is where life comes from, nowhere else. Where are you looking for life, brothers and sisters? It's found in the Word. This incarnate Word of God. And that spiritual life in Him, he says, was the light of man. In other words, it is that which illuminates one's mind to know and understand who God is and casts out the darkness of sin and evil. Uh, Another allusion to Genesis. The contrast of light and darkness. God creates the light which is good and separates it from the darkness. Light is also used throughout the prophetic writings, again, to refer to the Messiah. Isaiah 9.2, The people who walked in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. In Isaiah 42, of God's servant, I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So here John says the light, present tense, shines on in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overpower it or overcome it. Perhaps again a reference to Genesis when the forces of darkness are trying to overpower the light of God in man. Satan, in other words, tempting Adam and Eve... And they fall into sin, seemingly dooming all the good creation of God. But the light shines on in the darkness. And the darkness did not overcome it. In other words, the darkness may have seemed to have won a battle, but it will not win the war. In fact, we know from the Old Testament witness, darkness would continue to try and extinguish the promised one of God at every point. Unbelief, rebellion, sin, the fallenness of the world conspired to snuff out that light of God. Right? Think about Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve were expecting a promised offspring. Cain is here until he kills Abel. And we see he is not that promised one. Noah and the flood, the barrenness of Abraham and Sarah, and on and on. Every time the darkness seems to extinguish the light of God's promises, it could not do so. And the light shined all the brighter, and God's promises remained intact. So we're left with the question then, not if God's light would overcome darkness. Here he says, light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overpower it. We're wondering, how is he going to do this? How? Is he going to shine his light in the world? And what role might this word play in the light shining in the darkness? Well, we read through verse 18 and we know 
It is Jesus, the Word. Jesus is the light and life of the world. He became flesh and came into the world to inaugurate the kingdom of God. He humbled himself to a sacrificial death for sinners. And that is all the more amazing, is it not, as you consider who this Word is, who this Word has been since the beginning, that he would become flesh and humble himself for our salvation. Well, we're still waiting for the darkness to be completely vanquished. The first time Jesus came as a humble lamb and was slain for sinners, but he will come again as a conquering lion and rescue his people and save his people from this darkness. So then we have an answer to Lucretius' problem of life, which is this, this long struggle in the dark. The darkness will not prevail. It will not win. However, this hope is found only in the one in whom there is life, in the Word. The light which casts out the darkness is only found in the Word. And this gives us hope and joy in the darkness of this life. There is an end to which we are going. The darkness will not prevail over the promises of God. Brother or sister in Christ, the darkness, will not, the darkness of your sin will not prevail over your life in Christ. The darkness of your spiritual dullness will not prevail. The darkness of this fallen world will not prevail. The darkness of your suffering and sorrows will not prevail. The darkness of death itself will not prevail against this light of life which is found in the Word. John's Gospel is about how this Word, which is God Himself, will come to triumph over the darkness and give the light of life to His people, thus fulfilling all the promises of God. Let all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we have the privilege of coming together in unity to celebrate communion. And so as the servers get ready to come forward, I want us to consider what the table represents, why we come to the table, and how we should come to the table. The table represents this Word which became flesh and dwelt among us. It represents Jesus Christ who died a sacrificial death for sinners, who offered up His body as a pleasing, perfect sacrifice for sinners. Receiving the punishment that we should have received for our sin. And so we should come to the table as a reminder of this redeeming work of Christ for us. We should come ready to receive spiritual nourishment from Him. Paul calls uh, the, the bread and the cup a participation in Christ as we receive it by faith. We come reminded we are sons and daughters Brothers and sisters in the family of God, citizens of the kingdom of God, one body, the body of Christ. So we should come to the table with attitudes of repentance and humility, receiving His grace by faith. We are to come understanding we are completely unable to save ourselves by good works or by any other means. So having considered those things, let us now bow before the Lord. Reflect upon those things and also confess our sins to Him. Let us pray.